very important positions. Our nominees today are Mrs. Jennifer Barber, representative on the economic UN and Atlantic representative to the General Assembly. Uh, secondly, Mr. Edward Burrier to be the Deputy Chief Executive Officer of the International Development Finance Corporation. Lieutenant General Keith Dayton to be Ambassador to Ukraine. Mrs. Julie Fisher to be Ambassador to Belarus and Mr. Alex Wong to be representative for the Special Political Affairs at the UN and alternative representative to the General Assembly. Uh, two of our nominees today have uh, distinguished individuals here to introduce them. Uh, Senator Cotton and Senator Romney will be introducing Mr. Wong. And uh, we're glad to add, uh, welcome former Congressman Ed Royce uh, with us, and he'll be introducing Mr. Burrier. I also have a statement I'll be entering into the record submitted by Leader McConnell in support of the Barber nomination. Uh, I'm going to uh, postpone my opening statement and ask the ranking member to do the same until after uh, the introductions are made by our distinguished guests. So with that, uh, Senator Romney, uh, member of this committee, and we'll start with your introduction of Mr. Alex Wong. So Senator Romney, the floor is yours. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, today, today, I'd like to introduce Alex Wong to the committee. Alex is nominated to be the alternative representatives representative of the United States to the sessions of the General Assembly of the United Nations and to serve as the alternative representative of the United States for special political affairs in the United Nations. I've been fortunate enough to know Alex for many years since he served as the foreign and legal policy director on my 2012 campaign. My extensive firsthand interactions with Alex have led me to the following observations. First, he's brilliant. His ability to focus, concentrate thinking, analyze complexities, organize disorder, and identify opportunities is of the highest order. It's no surprise that he graduated summa cum laude from University of Pennsylvania and was an editor of the Law Review at Harvard. He is loyal and dedicated to America. Alex's driving purpose is to see America strengthened, to see our values promulgated, and to see the enemies of freedom defeated. He approaches tasks without preconception or bias. Instead, he preserves an open mind and considers the data as it is, not as he might like it to be. Alex has the kind of confidence that requires no boasting, that fears no slights, and that compels straightforward expression. He communicates succinctly and plainly without embellishment or self-aggrandizement, nor is he hesitant to express disagreement when he believes he's in the right. I greatly valued these things and made me a better candidate, but as much or more, I valued Alex's character. He's honest, devoted to principle, kind to others, firm in resolve, and a true friend. Now, since he left my campaign, or rather since my campaign, campaign disappeared, uh, Alex has gone on to distinguish himself as a diplomat, a public servant, and an expert in national security affairs, particularly with respect to our relationships in the Indo-Pacific. He's been at the State Department since 2017. He currently serves as both the Deputy Special Representative for North Korea and as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for North Korea. <laughs> Accordingly, he's second in command to Deputy Secretary Began to negotiate for complete North Korean denuclearization. He's made multiple trips to Pyongyang in support of our summits. 
Before assuming these responsibilities, he led the State Department's conceptualization of the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, which was significant in shifting U.S. focus towards the Indo-Pacific, of course, to address growing challenges presented by China. He was the first U.S. official to visit Taiwan after implementation of the Taiwan Travel Act, and he praised the strength of the U.S.-Taiwan relationship and the democratic path Taiwan has chosen. He speaks with knowledge and proficiency about the challenges posed by an ascendant China, the significance of working together with our allies to achieve common goals, and about policies that support Iraq to ensure it has a more prosperous future. He's one of the most talented foreign policy minds of his generation. And I've been fortunate over the years to be the beneficiary of his intellect and insights and judgment. I ask my colleagues on the committee to report Alex's nomination favorably and hope that the Senate will confirm his nomination without delay so he can get on with the important business of representing our country at the UN. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Romney. Senator Cotton. Chairman Risch, Senator Menendez, members of the committee, I am honored to introduce a friend, a trusted former aide, and a distinguished public servant, Alex Wong, who is the president's nominee to serve as the alternative representative for special political affairs at the United Nations. Alex is one of the most capable people with whom I've ever worked in the Senate, and his resume reflects that fact. He was educated at the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard Law School, where he was the managing editor of the Harvard Law Review. He clerked for Judge Janice Rogers Brown on the D.C. Circuit, and he was an attorney at Covington and Berlin. In the Senate, Alex served as my foreign policy advisor and general counsel. He helped to draft the original Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, a bill that can now only be described as prescient since the Chinese Communist Party has cracked down in Hong Kong. That bill passed by unanimous consent last year and was signed into law by the president. Alex then moved on to the State Department where he has contributed to our strategy for East and South Asia. He's strengthened relationships between the United States and Taiwan, and he's played a key role in our negotiations with North Korea. That's Alex's resume, but it's only one part of why I think he's the right person to represent our country at the United Nations. Alex is also one of the most cheerful and helpful people I've ever met. He always has a lot on his plate, whether here or at the State Department, but he's never too busy to help a colleague in need. Alex is also a family man. His wife, Candace, and two beautiful children have two, he and his wife, Candace, have two beautiful children, Chase and Avery. They obviously can't join us today for obvious reasons, but I know they're very proud of him for good reason, as he is of them. Alex is a patriot who cares deeply for our country and its principles because he and his family are living embodiments of the American dream. His parents, Robert and Grace Wong, came to America more than four decades ago from Hong Kong. They rented a one-bedroom apartment in Queens and worked to make a better life for their family. And their American dream came true. Their son is sitting before you today, ready to represent our country to the world at the United Nations. I know Alex is a man of character and a dedicated public servant because he has proven it to me his actions. And I know he will fight for America's interests at the United Nations because only in America could his story be possible. I urge all of you to support his nomination and I urge the Senate to move promptly on his confirmation so he can do the important work at the United Nations. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
Thank you, Senator Cotton. Uh, we're now going to turn to uh, former Congressman Royce. Uh, Congressman, we're glad to have you uh, back with us today. It's uh, good to see you, and uh, the floor is yours. Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you. It's it's good to see you and the members of the committee, and it's uh, good to be good to be able to speak up here, and, and a great honor uh, to be able to introduce to you my former former Deputy Staff Director on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Edward Burrier. Edward worked for me for 18 years, so he's not only someone I worked with, but someone that I am fortunate to call a friend. Edward first started in my office interning in the Africa Subcommittee, which I then chaired. And at the time, he was still in college at the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg. And every day, he would make the long commute from Fredericksburg just to volunteer. He then took a job in my personal office, where he met his future wife, a fellow junior staffer, Gretchen. They now have a young son, William, and it has been a pleasure watching them grow personally and professionally. Edward eventually rose to Deputy Staff Director of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And over the years, Edward was essential in achieving so much, including efforts to prevent the proliferation of shoulder-fired surface-to-air missiles to terrorists and major legislation sanctioning the regime of North Korea and Iran, which are dangerously pursuing nuclear weapons programs. He found a niche in tracking international rogues, some of who are now behind bars for gun running and creating mayhem, in part because of Edwards' efforts. He also produced important reports, including the path-breaking gangster regime, How North Korea Counterfeits United States Currency, and that is still relevant today. And he wrote for me hundreds of foreign intrigue blog entries, some of the most captivating foreign policy writing in Washington. In short, Edward was involved in all the major foreign policy issues of the day, helping to make our country safer and more prosperous. He has continued these efforts, first at the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, and now at the newly created Development Finance Corporation, where he works to advance America's interests around the world and to lift the globe out of poverty. He understands the importance of U.S. engagement in the developing world, which is more critical now than ever, as COVID-19 threatens a humanitarian, humanitarian crisis of enormous and tragic human consequence. Edward Burrier not only has the experience required to be the deputy chief executive officer at the DFC, he also has the intellect, he has the knowledge, most importantly, he has the heart. And I couldn't think of someone more qualified to help lead this organization at this critical time in history. And I am thankful that he is willing to serve and I thank you again, Mr. Chairman. Ed, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate you uh, coming to the committee, and we certainly appreciate uh, your remarks and that information. Uh, we'll uh, now proceed. I'm going to make a few remarks and then turn it over uh, to the ranking member. And uh, let me say, first of all, uh, welcome, everyone. These are unique circumstances, and uh, in response to the unique times that we're living in, unique and many, many ways, uh, not just one. 
but uh, we adapt and uh, we move along. So uh, we've got these five nominees. Uh, I'm uh, going to talk about each of them briefly here. First uh, is uh, Ms. Jennifer Barber, who's nominated to be the U.S. representative on the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations. This position is tasked with, the, with advancing and protecting American interests related to the economic and social programs at the United Nations. Ms. Barber currently serves as a member of the law firm Frost Brown Todd LLC. Next, we have Mr. Edward Burrier, nominated to be Deputy CEO of the International Development Finance Corporation. This role assists the CEO in accomplishing uh, DFC's objective of partnering with the private sector to finance solutions for some of the most critical challenges facing the developing world today. One recent development I support and would like to highlight is the DFC's decision to include nuclear projects in its portfolio. Mr. Burrier has worked at the DFC since its creation and before that. He was a longtime staffer for the House Foreign Affairs Committee. We turn now to our nominee to be ambassador to Ukraine, retired Lieutenant General Keith Dayton. General Dayton served in the United States Army from 1970 to 2010, four decades of distinguished service. Retiring from the military, General Dayton has been the director of the Marshall Center in Germany most recently has served as a senior U.S. Defenser, defense advisor to Ukraine. Over the past year, the U.S.-Ukraine relationship was thrust into the national spotlight. This was unfortunate, but it is time to move forward and make clear that Ukraine enjoys a bipartisan support in implementing reforms and countering Russian malign influence. That's why I was glad last week to introduce the Ukraine Security Partnership Act alongside ranking member Menendez and four other members of this committee. This bill will further assist the Ukrainian military in its battle against Russian-backed separatists and incentivize military reforms in line with NATO standards. Our next nominee is uh, Ms. Julie Fisher, the ambassador to the Republic of Belarus. Ms. Fisher is a career foreign service officer. Most recently, she served as deputy assistant secretary for uh, Western Europe and European Union. She has also served as the deputy chief of mission at the U.S. mission to NATO. Ms. Fisher, your nomination marks an important step in our relationship with Belarus. If confirmed, you will be first U.S. ambassador to Minsk since 2008. I welcome your thoughts on the challenges that lie ahead in rebuilding the U.S.-Belarus relationship, encouraging reforms, countering Russian and Chinese uh, influence. Finally, we have Mr. Alex Wong nominated to be uh, alternate representative for special political affairs at the United Nations. This role is involved in overseeing UN peacekeeping operations, disarmament, and international security policies and programs. Mr. Wong currently serves as Deputy Special Representative for North Korea, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. With that, uh, Senator Menendez, I'm going to turn the floor over. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome to all of uh, the nominees. Uh, uh, before I address uh, the, uh, the nominees before us, I'm just compelled to note uh, that this is unfortunately another in a series of nominations here that have been noticed unilaterally over the objections of the minority and to a large extent without our input. Additionally, two of the three hearings this week were noticed without securing a Democratic ranking member for the hearing, and one of them was noticed in violation of committee practice under the seven-day rule, which is unfortunate. Um, I think uh, clearly the chairman has the authority to run the committee in this manner, 
but it is a drastic departure from committee practice. It sets a precedent for how the committee will run under any future majority, Democratic or, or Republican. And it's also disappointing the committee is holding five nominations hearings and a nomination only business meeting this work period. Well, we have not marked up a bill since May. Nominations are an important committee function, but to be relevant, we need to be engaged in legislating on the issues that matter to Americans. I know many members of the committee, both Democrat and Republican, want this to happen, and I hope uh, it can happen in the days ahead. And then finally, given the intense interest and sensitivity of the issues surrounding Ukraine, and it has suggested that General Dayton should be on a panel by himself, or at least at a minimum, with just one other nominee. Squeezing him on a panel of five doesn't do justice on this set of issues. So, Mr. Chairman, I hope you'll be uh, generous in time, especially as we have to deal uh, with uh, all of these nominees in one panel. Now, the committee has been a long stalwart champion for the relationship with Ukraine. As chairman, I led efforts on two laws that were passed in the wake of Russia's invasion of the country in 2014. And as the chairman mentioned just last week, we joined together, Chairman Rich and I, to introduce legislation that will substantially increase FMF and IMEP for the country. The fact remains that Ukraine is under daily assault on the ground, on the seas, and in cyberspace from an aggressive Kremlin. Ukrainian service members that have selflessly and courageously fought Russian forces that seek to violate its sovereignty and disrupt the international order uh, are constantly challenged. President Trump significantly damaged our standing with Ukraine and undermined our own national security by holding security assistance hostage to his political agenda. That was a, 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 a challenge to our relationship, uh, which led to impeachment proceedings. It is now more important than ever for the Senate to speak with one voice in support of Ukraine, especially in the provision of security assistance. And I am glad that we were able to send that clear message with our legislation. General Dayton, if you're confirmed, you'll have very big shoes to fill in Kiev. Those of Marsha Yovanovitch and Bill Taylor, both were not only exemplary diplomats and representatives of the United States, had the courage to speak truth to power. I hope that you also will be up to that task. Rudy Giuliani and a cast of unsavory Ukrainian characters have not let up their efforts to use Ukraine to interfere in U.S. politics. Others in the Senate seem intent on amplifying their efforts. And I expect that if confirmed, you would not engage in these games, and I would want your commitment towards that end. Ms. Fisher, I'm glad to have you with us today. You're the first nominee to US, be U.S. Ambassador to Belarus in over a decade. Your nomination comes at a critical time as Belarus's people are rising to demand democracy and respect for human rights in unprecedented numbers. The Belarusian government's move away from Russia is important, but we cannot ignore the voices of the Belarusian people. The centerpiece of our policy on Belarus must be a commitment to democracy and human rights. And I look forward to hearing from you on what steps you would take if confirmed to support the aspirations of the Belarusian people. Ms. Barbara, Mr. Wong, welcome. At every turn, uh, the Trump administration has unfortunately sought to undermine multilateral institutions. The administration's actions, in my view, don't make America great. They leave America alone. 
President Trump's announced intent to withdraw from the World Health Organization exemplifies a culture of blame shifting and isolationism that is self-defeating for the United States. It's astonishing that during the height of a pandemic, the principal institution charged with the leading and coordinating a global response will no longer receive U.S. support. I am likewise deeply troubled by the attempts of the administration to limit gender equality and restrict the rights of women and girls. It is unacceptable that the U.S. government representatives at the United Nations have sought to remove references to longstanding and agreed upon language on gender-based violence and sexual and reproductive health. We must lead the collective commitment to advance fundamental rights and freedoms for all rather than undermine the rights of some. And I look forward to hearing from the nominees on these issues. Mr. Barrier, welcome. You seem well-suited for the job and rounding out the leadership circle of the DFC is incredibly important. However, I have some serious concerns with some of the DFC's actions that I need the nominee's commitment to address. And that includes the authorities that were granted to the DFC under the Defense Production Act executive order signed by the president, as well as concerns with how the DFC is pursuing environmental and social policy. I know you were not there to make those decisions, but I want to hear how you would deal with it if confirmed. With that, Mr. Chairman, thank you. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, first of all, I want I do want the record to be clear that uh, the seven-day rule uh, simply requires uh, that uh, I consult uh, with the ranking member uh, if I'm going to hold a hearing in less than seven days. As you know, as always, we consulted, we consulted, and we consulted to our staffs, but uh, as frequently happens, we were unable to reach an agreement. So I noticed the hearing. I, I share your concern as far as marking up the bill. I, I love nothing better than to spend our time doing that and less time on the knobs. But uh, time is at a premium around here. And as you know, we consult and we consult and we consult on knobs. The process is very slow. And after all, we have to stand up for government anything else. Um, and uh, this week we had four here, uh, four meetings. Last week, two meetings. We had three meetings. We're not dragging our feet. Time is at a premium. Uh, but uh, we'll uh, keep uh, moving forward. So with that, uh, thank you, Senator Menendez, and we will move to our first nominee, uh, Ms. Barber. Uh, for each of you, uh, your full statement will be included in the record. And without objection, um, uh, we uh, ask you to keep your remarks to about five minutes and uh, put, your full, uh, put your full statement in the record. You heard Ms. Uh, Senator Menendez, uh, refer to a request for the generosity, uh, the term is generosity and time. All of you who are on this committee know that the chairman is very generous. Notwithstanding the occasional abuse by members, but uh, we, will, uh, we will be generous with them. And I think uh, Senator Menendez is right. Uh, we do have a number of uh, people here and it's we do have the ability to ask questions. So with that, uh, thank you and uh, Ms. Barber, you're up. Thank you. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of this committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. I am humbled to be considered for the role of U.S. Ambassador to the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations, and if confirmed, would be honored to have the opportunity to serve our country in this capacity. A special thanks to Leader McConnell for his written statement that's submitted to the record and for his support. 
I would also like to express my gratitude to President Donald Trump and Secretary Mike Pompeo for nominating me and to Ambassador Kelly Craft for the confidence and trust that she has placed in me. In particular, I wanna thank God for preparing this path. My husband, Andy, thank you for your constant love and support. And our daughters, Molly and Lucy, the next generation for whom I am determined to make this world a better place. And the many members of my family and friends who are watching this right now, thank you for the many meaningful ways that you have impacted my life. I would also like to recognize my parents, Kenneth and Laura Yu, who immigrated here from China 50 years ago. My mother is one of seven children and one of four that my grandparents brought to the United States, making the difficult decision to leave three behind to pursue freedom, opportunity, and the promise of America. She was reunited with her remaining siblings 19 years later when they immigrated to our country. I grew up working alongside my parents and late grandfather, Sik Chi Yu, in our family's restaurant. Their daily example of sacrifice and hard work and their determination to provide greater opportunity is why it is possible for me to appear before you today and it inspires me to shine America's light brightly on the UN stage. I would also like to express my appreciation to my colleagues at Frost Brown Todd for their support throughout my legal practice and now as I pursue public service. And finally, I'd like to thank the team at the State Department who helped guide me through this process. It has been 75 years since that day in San Francisco when representatives of 50 nations weary of the human toll of World War II, signed the UN Charter to create a new organization designed in part to solve problems of an economic, social, cultural, or humanitarian character, and to encourage respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms. United States remains central to those ideals, and if confirmed, I will proudly carry to the United Nations the unyielding American commitment to human rights humanitarian response, and economic development. As you know well, that commitment is tested frequently. Many UN member states work to undermine the values that shape the UN in order to advance their narrow agendas and elevate authoritarian ideals. We see instances of this in some of our most pressing challenges today. From the Chinese Communist Party's mismanagement of the COVID-19 crisis and its suppression of democracy in Hong Kong, to the Russian and Chinese opposition to providing necessary humanitarian relief to besieged communities in Northeast Syria. If confirmed, I will use my voice and energy to advance the American vision for human rights and fundamental freedoms. I will also carry with me the determination to empower women and girls. It is vital that girls have access to education and that women have equal opportunity in the workplace. We must fuel entrepreneurship and diminish sexual violence and exploitation. The United States must also continue to play a central role in sustaining the UN's humanitarian response system. That system, built around organizations such as UNICEF and the World Food Program, is extensive and where permitted to operate is effective, feeding millions daily and providing assistance to displaced populations. 
The demands on that system are quickly growing. As the world tackles a record number of humanitarian crises and swelling populations of displaced people. I know the deep commitment of Congress in providing for those in dire need. There is no country more generous than ours. Yet, as those needs grow, so does the need for more nations to share in that responsibility. And finally, I will note that American objectives at the United Nations will only be realized if the UN is efficient, effective, and transparent. Reform of UN agencies has been an American priority spanning decades, and I believe that considerable progress has been made. If confirmed, strengthening that progress will be among my priorities, as will advocating for robust civil society participation and private sector engagement. Mr. Chairman, members of this committee, for the United Nations to be relevant for the next 75 years, it must remain true to the values that shaped its original purpose and also rise to meet to the needs of today. If confirmed, I will work tirelessly toward that goal and partner with you in Congress to further American values and interests. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, uh, Ms. Barber, and we will now turn to Mr. Burrier. Edward, you're up. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez and members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as the first Deputy Chief Executive Officer of the United States International Development Finance Corporation. I greatly appreciate Chairman Royce's kind introduction. I owe more than just my career to the chairman. As a young staffer on Capitol Hill, I met my incredible wife of 14 years, Gretchen. She and her son, William, are watching today, and I'm grateful for their support. Like me, Gretchen has spent her career in government and knows the demands, responsibilities, and honor that, that come with being a public servant. I grew up in Fairfax, Virginia, the youngest son of two talented musicians. My father served the United States Army Band for over 30 years. Integrity, respect for others, and most of all, hard work were instilled in me by my parents. As a senior in high school, I volunteered for a local congressional candidate who went on to win a historic election. I was enthralled that I played a small part in that democratic process, even if it was just stuffing envelopes. While at Mary Washington College, I did several internships on Capitol Hill and spent one summer uh, interning for a member of parliament in London. My last semester, I took a commuter train from Fredericksburg, Virginia to intern at the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Africa, then chaired by Congressman Royce. After graduation, the Congressman offered me a job in his personal office, opening mail, answering phones, and giving capital tours to constituents from Orange County, California. Little did I know I would spend the next 18 years working for the Congressman. I worked my way up from the personal office to the committee and earned a master's degree in national security from the US Naval War College along the way. I became deputy staff director of the House Foreign Affairs Committee in 2013, a position I held for the next four and a half years. During that time, the committee worked alongside this committee to advance US interests abroad bolster those yearning for freedom, solidify alliances, and even help put a warlord or two behind bars. Those results were achieved by being consultative, solution-oriented, and working across the aisle. I brought these qualities with me when I transitioned to the executive branch three years ago. As Vice President for External Affairs at the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, I led OPEC's efforts both in the interagency and with this committee on the BUILD Act, 
the landmark legislation that created DFC. I believe strongly in DFC's mission. Simply put, there are not enough government resources to tackle the challenges of the developing world. Through DFC, we can leverage the power of private capital to help meet demands, improve lives, and advance American interests. I've seen firsthand the impact that U.S. development finance can have. I've met with Sharuk, an energetic woman in Amman, Jordan, who took a small loan to start a driving school to empower women. I've met with homeowners in Ghana who achieved that dream thanks in part to DFC financing. And I've visited DFC finance power plant in Togo that is giving the country a chance to power its economy forward. From microfinance to secure telecommunications to infrastructure, DFC support is critical in helping create opportunity and growth. The role of DFC is only expanding as the developing world grapples with a sobering economic outlook in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Times like these are precisely when institutions like DFC are needed most. Of course, this is also when our strategic competitors are looking to take advantage of the situation to advance their influence. If I'm fortunate enough to be confirmed, I look forward to working with the committee to ensure that DFC maximizes its tools and is a robust alternative to authoritarian financing that can leave developing countries worse off. Mr. Chairman, I am committed to U.S. leadership and engagement in the world, and I'm convinced that DFC will be at the forefront of our country's development policy for generations to come. If confirmed, I pledge to work closely with the committee to strengthen DFC's foundations so that the bold vision you had in drafting the Build Act becomes a reality. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate those uh, words. Uh, General Dayton, you're up. Chairman Risch, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of this committee, it's an honor to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine. If confirmed, I look forward to working with this committee and Congress to continue our strong bipartisan support for the Ukrainian people, to enhance our already deep bilateral relationship, support Ukraine's reform agenda, counter Russian malign influence, and work to fully restore Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. These steps will be critical to advancing our shared goal of Ukraine joining the Euro-Atlantic community as a free and full member. My name is Keith Dayton. I'm married to Carol, my wife of almost excuse me, 45 years. We have three married children, five grandchildren, and one more on the way. I've dedicated the past 50 years of my life to public service. I retired from the U.S. Army as a Lieutenant General in 2010 after more than 40 years in uniform. And for the past almost 10 years, I have been the director of the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies in Garmisch, addressing regional and transnational security issues for both the United States and Germany. Ukraine has been part of my life for 40 years. After I was commissioned in 1970 as a field artillery officer, I learned Russian and graduated from the U.S. Army Russian Institute in Germany as a Soviet foreign area officer. It was through the Russian Institute that I had the first opportunity to visit Soviet Ukraine in 1980. I'll never forget the experience of meeting Ukrainians and recognizing the deep pride they have in their history and culture while appreciating the incredible suffering inflicted on the Ukrainian people by foreign powers throughout their history. As a Soviet Russia military specialist, I've had various assignments, culminating as the U.S. defense attache in Moscow as a brigadier general. As a lieutenant general, I served as the U.S. security coordinator 
for Israel and the Palestinian Authority in Jerusalem from 2005 to 2010. I reported directly to the Secretary of State as I led a multinational team working with the Israeli government and the Palestinians. As such, I operated at the most senior levels in Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Qatar, as well as with Ottawa, London, and Washington. I was both a diplomat and a soldier. After retiring from the Army in 2010, I've continued to serve my country as the director of the Marshall Center. The Revolution of Dignity brought Ukraine back to the center of my attention. Inspired by the fierce commitment to democracy and freedom by the protesters on the Maidan, I directed the Marshall Center to create a comprehensive program of seminars and assistance to Ukraine, focusing on civil-military relations, civilian oversight of the armed forces, and security sector reform. The goal was to help Ukraine's new leadership adopt Euro-Atlantic principles of government and take the steps required to one day join NATO. I'm proud to note that in this endeavor, I've had the enthusiastic help of the U.S. Senate. In October 2018, then Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis asked me to be the U.S. Defense Advisor to Ukraine. In this role, I chaired the Defense Reform Advisory Board composed of the United States, Canada, the U.K., Poland, Lithuania, and Germany. We serve as strategic advisors to the Ukrainian Defense Minister and meet him often. I have come to know firsthand today's Ukraine and its many challenges, and I've developed relationships with supporters of Ukraine in the U.S. Congress at the Department of Defense and the Department of State. The Ukraine I encountered as a young man in 1980 was very different from the vibrant and hopeful country I work with as the defense advisor, but fundamental challenges remain the same. Ukraine seeks to rid itself of Moscow's interference, eliminate corruption, and build a government that's accountable, transparent, and responsive to all its citizens. But one thing hasn't changed and will not change, and that is that it's in the national security interests of the United States for Ukraine to overcome these challenges and achieve a future in which Ukraine is whole, democratic, and free. There is much at stake here. Ukraine is trying to achieve a just and peaceful resolution to a conflict created and fueled by Russia that has led 13,000 dead and caused untold suffering. President Zelensky has made ending this conflict a cornerstone of his administration. And while the United States remains an advocate for a diplomatic resolution, we support Ukraine's right to defend itself against Russia's ongoing aggression in the East and resist Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea. At the same time, Ukraine must continue on the difficult path of implementing rule of law, good governance, and economic reform. This is hard work. From the Orange Revolution to the Revolution of Dignity to the 2019 elections that brought President Zelensky and his party to power, Ukrainians have repeatedly demanded accountable leadership, an end to corruption, and transparent, independent judicial and law enforcement bodies that respond to citizens' needs over the demands of oligarchs and other interests. And Mr. Chairman, if confirmed, I will work with Ukraine's leadership to ensure these reforms remain at the top of their national agenda. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, thank you for this opportunity to talk to you, and I welcome any questions you may have. Thank you, uh, General. Now, we'll now turn to uh, Ms. Fisher. Ms. Fisher. Um, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, members of this committee, it is an honor to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to serve as the first American ambassador to Belarus since 2008. If confirmed, 
I look forward to working with this committee and Congress to reestablish the bilateral relationship and to support Belarus's efforts to protect its sovereignty and independence in the face of political pressure aimed at undermining both. I'm joined today by my husband, Matthew Fisher. He has been a supporter of my career since the day I took the Foreign Service exam, and my achievements are due in large part to his unwavering support. I'm proud to hail from a family dedicated to our nation's service. My grandfather, my father, and my sister all served as naval officers at times of war and peace. My family joins us virtually, and I'm grateful for their support. If confirmed, I look forward to building on the work of our exceptional team in Minsk to further reforms and promote a more ambitious bilateral relationship. I will bring to this position 25 years of experience, including service at our embassies in Kyiv, Moscow, Tbilisi, and at NATO. Most recently, I was honored to serve as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, focused on Western Europe and the European Union. Our relationship with Belarus languished for more than a decade, but after Russia's illegal seizure and occupation of Crimea and its manufactured war in Ukraine's Donbass region, we began to see signs of interest from the Belarusian side. Since 2018, and in line with the goals laid out in the national security strategy, we have advanced a more engaged approach that recognizes Belarus's right to chart its own future free from foreign dictates. Former Assistant Secretary Wes Mitchell initiated this outreach with his visit to Minsk in late 2018. And since then, we have seen increased engagement from both sides culminating in Secretary Pompeo's visit to Minsk in February. This Sunday, Belarus will hold its presidential election following an eventful and testy summer. Recent elections in Belarus have been neither free nor fair. Despite efforts to convince authorities to adopt OSCE recommendations, Belarus's 2019 parliamentary elections did not meet international standards and neither the OSCE nor the Council of Europe will observe the upcoming elections. If confirmed, I intend to support the aspirations of the Belarusian people as they strive for democratic principles, including universal freedoms, civil liberties, and the rule of law. We have encouraged Belarus to address pressing human rights priorities and implement the reforms outlined in the Belarus Democracy Act, which are essential for it to strengthen its international standing and fulfill its people's aspirations. Nonetheless, the government continues to detain and pressure the opposition and impose restrictions on the press, civil society, and certain religious minorities. We have seen numerous incidents of such pressure during the ongoing election campaign, despite some modest improvements in the treatment of political opposition and independent civil society in recent years. In the face of insufficient progress on these issues, our relationship will continue to be bound by the constraints imposed by the terms of the Belarus Democracy Act. However, there is encouraging progress in other areas. Belarus's young generation has a notable entrepreneurial spirit as evidenced in the dynamic growth of the information technology sector. Recent deliveries of American crude oil can help diversify Belarus's energy supply and support jobs here at home. Belarus is increasingly pursuing American investment, and if confirmed, I will support the creation of reciprocal business councils in Minsk and in Washington. And we welcome Belarus's cooperation on priorities, including nonproliferation, 
law enforcement, and information sharing in fields such as border security, cybersecurity, and counter-narcotics. If confirmed, I hope to build upon this foundation. Embassy Minsk has grown in size since the Belarusian government's decision to lift its cap on the number of American employees. And we are engaged in discussions to construct a new embassy compound. I have learned from experience in other fast-growing missions some of the risks of rapid growth, and I am committed to careful stewardship of taxpayer resources. Finally, as Secretary Pompeo stated during his February visit to Minsk, we fully support Belarus's desire to make its own choices, pursue its own partnerships, and play a constructive role in the region. Belarus should not be forced to depend on any single nation, and we are not asking Belarus to choose between East and West. Countries, much like individuals, choose their friends, but not their neighbors. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez, members of this committee, in closing, let me say that we have a real opportunity in Belarus. But this opportunity is a two-way street, and we will move ahead at the appropriate pace as the Belarusians are willing, as our national interests dictate, and as our values permit. I look forward to working with you as we carry this effort forward. I thank you very much for the opportunity to appear today, and I welcome your questions. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Fisher. You certainly have challenges uh, in Belarus. I think all of us were disappointed that the elections being held were being held under the circumstances they are and without the uh, recognition of the international community. Uh, I think it's going to be difficult for the Belarus people to accept those elections, see how they handle it. You have your challenges. So thank you for taking on this. Subject. That will turn to Mr. Wong. Thank you, sir. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, distinguished members of the committee, I'm deeply honored to, honored to appear before you as the president's nominee to serve as the alternate representative for special political affairs at the United Nations. And I'm humbled by the confidence President Trump, Secretary Pompeo, and Ambassador Kraft have shown me with this nomination. And I want to particularly thank Senators Romney and Cotton, not just for their, their kind introductions, but for the outsized roles that they've played in my career. There are so many other people to thank for bringing me to this point in my professional life. The late Ambassador Tom Schweik, Judge Janice Brown, Lan He Chen, the late Ambassador Rich Williamson, Paula Dobriansky, National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, Brian Hook, Ambassador Stu Eisenstadt, and Deputy Secretary Steve Began. All of these distinguished statesmen and women gave me the opportunity to fail, to succeed, and to grow as a professional. I'm greatly indebted to them all. All of these individuals took a chance on me, but it was my parents, Robert and Grace Wong, who took the biggest chance of all for my sake. They left Hong Kong 43 years ago. They settled into a single room rental in Kew Gardens, Queens, with an infant, a bus pass for the commute to an arduous and unstable job, and a whole lot of belief in the United States of America. I'm so fortunate to return to the city that welcomed them to America represent the country they so dearly believed in. It will vindicate that belief in a way they could have scarcely imagined as newly arrived immigrants. And Mr. Chairman, I'm truly blessed to have three godsends who sustain me every day, who inspire me, who give my life its meaning. My baby girl, Avery, my dear son, Chase, and my beautiful bride, Candace. Mr. Chairman, my professional life has been focused on advancing U.S. interests in the foreign policy realm. 
I joined the civilian surge in Iraq that was so necessary to complement the military surge. I had the opportunity to work as Senate staff to advise and support Senator Cotton on a range of national security matters. And three years ago, I returned to the State Department, first, to deepen U.S. engagement in the Indo-Pacific, and second, to help realize the final, fully verified denuclearization of North Korea. In all of these roles, I've been reminded of the importance of pragmatism in an arena as difficult and uncertain as foreign affairs. But I've also seen the overriding value of standing firmly and boldly for American principles. My late mentor, Rich Williamson, who held the very job I've been nominated for, would often say to me, you have to be a realist to take steps in the everyday, but an idealist to know in which direction you're going. That is a philosophy I would bring to the United Nations. Mr. Chairman, many of the core functions of the United Nations are centered at the Security Council. The Council has a weighty mandate to preserve international peace and security, but too often, it doesn't live up to it. The world has no doubt entered into a period of heightened geopolitical competition. This is a time when the United States and our friends and allies in the free world are facing greater challenges and more dire threats. This heightened competition is manifesting itself at the Security Council and the wider UN system. This is in large part why the Council has not been able to take decisive action as the UN Charter demands and as our conscience demands to address conflict and human suffering in hotspots spanning the globe. Russia and China block discussion of Maduro's crimes in Venezuela because the Assad regime has two permanent P5 protectors. The Council has never done right by the Syrian people in this decade of their suffering. And I must note that even in this year of 2020, well into the 21st century, our close and steadfast friend Israel still faces attacks in the UN system that echo the most sinister prejudices of centuries past. Even though our work at the Council may be harder in this era of great power competition, even though it may be frustrating, it doesn't mean it's any less important. In fact, I believe it's more important than ever. Strategic, principled, and tireless diplomacy at the Council is needed to unify our partners, to blunt damaging initiatives, and to advance U.S. interests to benefit the world. Now, there are functions of the Council that, for, mo for the most part, are, are working. The U.N. peacekeeping is a vital institution for promoting international peace and security, to protect the credibility of that institution, and more importantly, to protect vulnerable populations around the world. The United States has demanded and successfully won increased scrutiny and reform of peacekeeping budgets, mandates, and accountability mechanisms for poor performance and misconduct. Our efforts, as well as the efforts of this committee, have resulted in new training, reporting, and accountability measures for sexual exploitation and abuse committed by peacekeeping personnel. And we have succeeded in giving missions realistic and achievable mandates, as well as clear exit strategies to keep them from remaining in place beyond their useful purpose which is too often the case in the past. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, in an era of great power competition in which the values of the free world are under pressure, I believe it is vital for the United States to hold firmly, firmly to its position of leadership at the United Nations. It is American values, liberty, fundamental rights, and the sovereignty of a nation's people that animate a just and workable international system. Those values will always be at the front of my mind. I'm so fortunate as to be confirmed for this position. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions.
<clears throat> Thank you, uh, Mr. Wong. We appreciate your remarks. Um, we're going to do a, a five-minute round of questioning now, and I'm going to do it uh, on a seniority basis since it's impossible to keep track of uh, who showed up first. So, um, the uh, the most difficult uh, proposition here is the uh, five-minute clock. We are going to be on the honor system. Now, we all know that didn't work so well when our uh, our clock was broken in the committee, but uh, we're going to give it a go again and. Uh, we're not completely on the honor system because I do have a five-minute clock. We, uh, as the as the ranking member pointed out, there's there's important things to explore here, and we'll uh, we'll try to give everybody a shot at it, and then come back again uh, with another round for those that uh, have other questions. And there are a lot of questions on. on with that, uh, I will uh, turn it over to on the clock. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, General Dayton, uh, if confirmed, uh, do you commit to not meet with Rudy Giuliani or his associates? Senator, I'm not going to commit to that because I believe that as an ambassador, I would have the obligation to meet with any U.S. citizen and hear them out if they come. But let me assure you, I've spent 50 years in the service to this country. And the guiding principles of my life have been the triad of duty, honor, and country. And anything I would deal with with, with uh, Mr. Giuliani or any other person who approaches me will well, be guided by strict aware, integrity. You're aware, General, of why I even asked that question, I assume, correct? I'm aware of what I've read in the paper, Senator, but I had nothing to do with and I was not involved in any way in the, uh, the episode. I appreciate that you, you, you weren't engaged with it, but you are going to be, if confirmed, the ambassador at an embassy which has been rife uh, with the use of political actors to try to influence and undermine the course of U.S. elections. I think that's a high calling and responsibility. So let me ask you this. If, if uh, confirmed, do you commit to report through the appropriate channels into this committee if you become aware of any efforts to interfere in the November 2020 U.S. elections? Senator, I think if that were to occur, that would be a very reasonable request on your part. Uh, I would, of course, consult with my State Department uh, colleagues, but uh, that sounds reasonable to me. Okay, let me refine the question. Would you tell members of the Committee of Jurisdiction, the one that you're before for confirmation, that you have become aware of efforts to interfere in the 2020 U.S. elections if that information came before you? Again, I would have to know what the circumstances are, uh, but, but I see no reason not to do that. It makes sense to me. Well, I, I'm, I'm a little alarmed by your equivocation. Let me ask you, should security assistance to any country be delayed in order to gain domestic political advantage? No. Was it wrong for the president to withhold security assistance from Ukraine in 2019? I'm not sure what the exact circumstances were on that. I was in Ukraine at the time. Uh, and I was not aware that this had affected any of our efforts that we dealt with on Ukraine at the time. The president does what the president does, and I am uh, there at the discretion of the president, and I fully understand that. But I'm also, if I'm in Ukraine, I'm at the, uh, at the disposal of the American public as well. 
Well, when you take an oath, if you're confirmed, it won't be to the president of the United States, correct? I believe it'll be the same oath I've taken all my life, which is to the Constitution of the United States. Correct. And Article One of the Constitution is the Congress of the United States. And so uh, I am deeply concerned when nominees equivocate on sharing information with the Committee of Jurisdiction, particularly with a history that we have uh, in Ukraine. Um, Will you, uh, if confirmed, uh, remain vigilant and try to prevent individuals from interfering in our election process if that information comes before you? Yes. Uh, following attacks on Ambassador Yovanovitch and other career employees from the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, I remain concerned about the toll that those attacks took on morale and other career public servants. What will you do to boost morale and send a clear message that you support career employees if you're confirmed? For 50 years, Senator, I have been a team builder in the Army and here at the Marshall Center. And I will build a team that's a team is already in place. I think they're in pretty good shape. I've met with many of them over the last year and a half. But I will indeed build a team that is uh, united in its efforts to advance American interests in Ukraine. Uh, let me turn to another question. Have you read the Ukraine Security Partnership Act that Senator Rich and I introduced last week? I have not read it in detail. I've read what's in the National Defense uh, Appropriations Act, but I've not read the act that you refer to. What are your views on increasing FMF and IMF security assistance for Ukraine as it encounters Russian aggression? I think it's a very good idea, and it's something I support wholeheartedly especially with the recent uh, experience I've had of the last 22 months as the defense advisor. Let me turn to Ms. Barber for a moment. Uh, Ms. Barber, your career to date has been as a tax attorney. Uh, you have no experience in foreign policy, no experience in multilateral diplomacy or expertise in economic or social issues. Uh, but should you be confirmed as uh, the ambassador to this position, you'd be charged to help to coordinate the work of many UN specialized agencies, including the World Health Organization, which the president announced his intention to withdraw from. Uh, you also uh, will be representing the US government in critical forms for global coordination on issues of gender and women's uh, human rights, including the commission on the status of women. I have some serious concerns regarding the administration's attempts to restrict women's rights. Um, do you intend, first of all, how are you going to uh, meet these challenges of being in a multilateral organization, but us withdrawing from multilateral organizations? And do you intend to use your position to bolster global cooperation and continue progress on gender and women's rights issues? Or will you continue the efforts we have seen so far in the administration to weaken our commitments for gender equality? Senator, I believe that effective diplomacy is identifying shared values and developing personal relationships to reach those common goals. And if confirmed, I will take my experience and my expertise in negotiations and problem solving, litigation and innovative thinking to try to tackle these various issues that you mentioned. As it relates to um, the World Health Organization um, and other organizations that 
um, the United States participates in. I believe that global participation is important, but I think that it is also important that we see contributions from other member states that is not so disparate to the United States participation and contributions. And if confirmed, I will work hard to bring like-minded partners to the table and try to expand resources and contributions from other states so that we can tackle some of the really rising humanitarian needs and human rights issues that the United States has been a global leader on. As it relates to women and girls, I am the first in my family to graduate from high school. So uh, as I mentioned in my opening statement, it is a priority for me to see that girls have access to education and women have equal opportunity in the workplace. And for that reason, I will absolutely be focused on issues relating to women and girls. I've seen where Ambassador Kraft has traveled to many places and from South Sudan to the Syrian border, she engages with- I appreciate your lengthy answer, but let me get to the specifics of what I was trying to get with you, which is you're aware that the administration has taken unprecedented hardline positions against longstanding agreement upon language on gender-based violence, as well as sexual and reproductive health issues. What is going to be the position that you will uh, advocate if you are confirmed on these issues? Senator, if confirmed, I will work hard to try to build consensus on resolutions that benefit women and girls. I think it's important that we have to empower them and unlock their potential. And as it relates to some terminology that um, you're referencing uh, that may prevent us from joining in, it is my um, priority to try to build consensus on clear terminology so that we can make most effective those resolutions for women and girls. Well, the, the consensus, I, I won't belabor because I want to not over overstep uh, the chairman's generosity. I'll come back. But the consensus has existed. So you don't need to build consensus. The consensus has insisted, uh, existed over these longstanding agreed upon language and gender-based violence and what U.S. law has been and the Solinder Amendment prohibiting the use of foreign assistance funds to lobby for or against some of these issues in multilateral organizations. So it worries me that you think you have to create consensus. The consensus exists. The question is what you're gonna do on behalf of the United States to follow and to build upon that consensus versus trying to create a new consensus that won't help women with gender violence issues. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, we'll now turn to uh, Senator Johnson and after Senator Johnson will be Senator Carter. So Senator Johnson, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I've got my own timer, so I won't abuse the, the time. Uh, General Dayton. Good for you. Obviously, you have a great deal of experience in Ukraine. I actually want to get some real information out of you because of that. Can you just update us in terms of the you know, general, general assessment of, of where Ukraine stands militarily in eastern Ukraine, the Kerch Strait, uh, Sea of Azov, the you know, the system Europe. volume to unmute. Is that up there? Yeah. Oh, this is how. Okay, so somebody needs to mute, but uh, General yeah, Dane, I think. Give me that uh, uh, basic military assessment. Then I kind of want to get your uh, assessment of the politics as well, the political situation. But start, with, start militarily. Have we progressed over the last uh, three and a half years? Have we made progress? General Dayton. 
Senator, we've made a lot of progress. We have a lot more to do. Uh, I hope this is working right. It looks like you're, you and I may be talking on top of each other. You, you've hit a big point, though, which is the Black Sea. Uh, sea of Azov Black Sea. This is going to become a much more important strategic uh, entity than it has been in the past. And where the Ukrainians need a lot more help is going to be with their Navy. It's going to be with their Air Force. They've always had a ground forces centric military. They need to outgrow that a bit. Now, the situation in the east is stable. Uh, could the Russians invade tomorrow? They could, but they would they would take a very bloody nose to do it. Um, and, and I think I would probably leave it at that. But we have we have a lot of work to do. What I like is the fact that the Ukrainians have truly embraced defense reform in a way that uh, when I started my advisory work 22 months ago, I didn't think they were capable of. And they have really come around. Now, President Zelensky, first of all, I think he's a smart man. I think he understands the mandate he received from the Ukrainian people to rid the country of, of corruption. I think in one of his speeches before the anti, uh, the high anti-corruption court, he said, we're just not going to uh, reduce corruption. He plans to defeat it. Uh, it's very difficult in Ukraine. Uh, I, I keep talking about Ukraine having to get past the, the era of the oligarchs. Um, can you give us your basic assessment uh, in terms of where, you know, how he's doing, uh, what he's up against, uh, just the challenges from a political standpoint, and, and you know, as, as we all recognize, table stakes in any of these Eastern European countries is to reduce the level of corruption so they can attract investment and, and have a greater economic opportunity. Senator, on the plus side, the Zelensky regime and the, the new parliament have done a lot in areas of agriculture, banking, health, education, good governance, law enforcement, and judiciary. That's on the plus side. They've built institutions. On the negative side, the oligarchs are still there. They are very powerful. And I think uh, that uh, this is going to be an area that I will have to deal with if I'm confirmed in a very serious manner. You know, we've gone over a year without a U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And I really do think that a U.S. senior presence will help President Zelensky deal with some of these issues. But the oligarchs, it's kind of like in Star Wars, the empire is trying to strike back. Zelensky is having some challenges now, and I think he needs a little bit of our help in a way that we have not been able to do it in the last year. Well, one of the issues in Ukraine is, of course, the oligarchs control the media. About it, we have billionaires control our media as well, but you have total control of the economy as well as the media, and that's a significant uh, challenge for, for any uh, leader who is trying to rid the country of, of uh, corruption. Um, can, can you basically speak to that, that, that challenge? It is a challenge, and you're absolutely right. Uh, Mr. Kolomoisky owns half of the radio and television stations in Ukraine, and ones he doesn't own are being broadcast into Ukraine by Russia. Uh, we are working on this. I know the State Department has a program working on uh, challenging disinformation that's coming, not just from the Russians, but from the oligarchs as well. But this is going to be a long-term project, and uh, it's something that I will definitely get into if I'm confirmed. So just real quick, um, President Zelensky won with over 70% 70, 70 approval, uh, really a, a stunning electoral success. Have, has the media, have the oligarchs done a pretty good job of uh, degrading that public support? Where, where does he stand publicly right now? Senator, the last poll I saw, 
he was still at least twice as popular among the public as anybody else. But his numbers are not at the stratosphere as they were before. Of course, they've come down. But again, you have to be careful of the polling there, too. As you know, Senator, more than anybody, the disinformation campaigns in this part of the world are phenomenal. And even some of the polling is quite suspect. I think he's still pretty popular. I think if elections were held tomorrow, he'd do very well and would be reelected. But, but, and I emphasize but, he needs some help because the bloom is off the rose here a little bit. Well, thank you for your service and good luck to you. God bless you. Thank you, uh, Senator Johnson. We'll now move to Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And let me thank all of our nominees for their willingness to, to serve our country. Uh, we appreciate that very much. And we also send our thanks to your families because we know this is a, a family commitment. Ms. Barber, I want to follow up on Senator Menendez's points in regards to the advancement of American values. How do you see the sustainable development goals and our participation in that as a way to advance our goals? Thank you, Senator Cardin. I think the sustainable development goals are an important framework from within which the UN member states need to work. I also think that um, it, it may be best um, enforced locally versus globally. I understand that there is not member consensus on the goals and the prioritization of those goals. And so I'm interested in learning more about how um, the prioritization will evolve and I do support them. I think that they provide a um, strong basis for targets for countries. Are you familiar with Gold 16, which deals with good governance? I am. Well, it states basically we cannot hope for sustainable development without peace, stability, human rights, and effective governance based on the rule of law. My point is this, uh, this the record on these uh, goals have been pretty good. It's a universal commitment to deal with poverty, to deal with education, to deal with gender equity, to deal with health care, and to deal with good governance now. So it really is an international commitment to achieve these goals and metrics are developed to show our, how well we're doing. We have a deadline. You're familiar with the date in which these goals are supposed to be met, 2030? Yes. So how will you use your office as confirmed to make sure that we, in fact, have demonstrable progress in meeting these goals. I could point out in 2019, 357 killings were reported of human rights defenders in 47 countries. That's a matrix that needs to change. So how are you going to use that to advance human rights? Senator, I agree with you, and I will work with the strong team at the U.S. mission that currently exists. I believe that they are focused on the sustainable development goals and that they are working on making sure that the United States makes progress in these areas. So I will continue to build on the momentum that they have and work with them to see to that we make improvement in these areas. I just uh, would encourage you to work with our committee. There is strong support for holding countries accountable. This is an international commitment effort. We have the private sector working with us as well as governmental entities to advance uh, the end of, of dealing with poverty and education, but also good governance, which is the key contribution that I think that the United States can make these efforts and we'll need your championing those issues. Uh, Mr. Burrier, I wanna uh, just get to one issue. You said you helped uh, develop the Build Act, uh, which deals very much with uh, the DFC. Part of that is a commitment that at least 50% of the business is done by small businesses. I mentioned that specifically because 
COVID-19 has had a, a, uh, just a horrible impact on all businesses, but small businesses don't have the resiliency. So attention to small businesses is even more important now. What commitment can you give us that you will work to make sure that goal is complied with? No, thank you very much, Senator. And obviously, thank you for your leadership on, on the BUILD Act. And remember working with you and your staff on, on that provision. Um, like OPIC before it, we have a strong commitment to helping both small businesses here in the United States. I remember working with Ellicott Dredges on that project in Iraq. Um, mm -hmm. And um, as you put your finger on it, this support for small, medium-sized enterprises in the developing world is going to be absolutely critical. Much like our economy at home, the economies in the developing world are, are powered and injured by these small businesses. And so we're having to shift our strategy a bit to make sure that we are working with financial institutions in the developing world that can online quickly to these small enterprises to ensure that these economies can keep going. Thank you. Ms. Fisher, I'll ask you one question on Belarus. It is exciting that we are going to hopefully have a confirmed ambassador. I've been to the country. Uh, let's not mistake that the, the move away from Russia is necessarily a move towards democracy, because we have seen uh, with the government very little real progress in defending the human rights of the people who live in their country or free and fair elections. I know we have elections coming up. It'll be challenging if they can meet the standards of free and fair elections. So I hope that we can count on you to give us a, a, an honest account of how well Belarus is doing on the human rights and the uh, good governance reforms, anti-corruption, et cetera, and not just try to remove them from Russia. We don't want them under Russia's umbrella, but quite frankly, Belarus has been pretty independent for a long time. It's not really dependable by Russia for a long time. So. What is your game plan on trying to establish realistic goals that we can advance our values in, in Belarus? Thank you, Senator. I, I really appreciate the question because I think it's at the heart of, of the challenge that we face uh, as we reestablish this bilateral relationship with, with Belarus. Um, I think a big part of the challenge for me um, in answering this question is that we have been um, really hobbled in our efforts um, to fully engage in Belarus with such a limited number of folks on the ground, such limited facilities uh, in Belarus, getting the story out, being able to communicate back what is happening on the ground is, um, is a particular challenge. And to be very frank, it's even harder in the current environment. Um, I will tell you, I am committed to making sure that the story as we see it, as we observe it uh, from the embassy, if I am confirmed, is what gets through to you, is what gets through uh, to, to our partners in Congress, as well as uh, across Washington. Um, the goal of this process is not simply to send an ambassador so that we can uh, move beyond the terms of the Belarus Democracy Act. It is to see whether our enhanced engagement can actually lead to greater results um, as we seek to support the aspirations of the Belarusian people. So this will be, in my view, it will be a long-term effort. It won't be quick. Um, it's gonna take us time. And I really look forward to being on the ground and engaging directly because there's such a tremendous difference between uh, what we can do from, uh, from afar across an ocean versus that personal engagement on the ground. And that's what I look forward to. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Uh, we'll now move to Senator Portman.
Did you say Senator Portman, Mr. Chairman? I did. That's you. Excellent. All right. Uh, thank you very much. And to all the nominees, I appreciate your willingness to step forward and serve your country at an important time in some really important roles. Uh, Lieutenant General Dayton is a star. And um, Mr. Chairman, I think you know how I feel about him. I think he's uh, the right person at the right time. Um, he has a distinguished military career, and since he hung up his uniform, he's continued to serve as director of the German Marshall Center. And he's used that post effectively, in my view, to increase uh, democracy development in Europe, and especially in Ukraine. And he's held, by the way, a number of seminars for members of the Ukrainian military and the RADA. Uh, my own staff uh, at the Permanent Subcommittee Investigations has assisted with teaching some of those classes. That's when I first came to know General Dayton. And uh, I believe he's knowledgeable, passionate about the issues, as we've seen today, and has worked hard to make the Ukrainian military a more capable and credible force, and, and one that does help fight corruption, that does have civilian control. Um, and that's, that's, that's a big accomplishment that uh, I think uh, he, he is largely responsible for. He's got instant credibility in Ukraine, and we need somebody who can hit the ground running right now. So he's got my support, and I hope my colleagues uh, will support him and, and continue to work with him. Um, we've got real threats right now in Ukraine, obviously. Uh, Russia continues to be aggressive on the border, eastern border. The devastating impact of COVID-19 pandemic on, on all countries is, is also visited Ukraine, unfortunately. And we need a confirmed ambassador there badly. So as I have said before, I think Ukraine is a critical strategic partner in the United States. They've come to us. You know, they've turned to the West. And uh, we want to help them to build a more free, open, and democratic society. And I think, uh, although they've made strides, they're at a critical point again right now. And I think, uh, General Dayton, you're the right person to help them continue on that path. I do have a, a letter I'd like to enter into the record by unanimous consent, uh, which is written by the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America regarding General Dayton. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I've already sent that electronically to your staff. Yeah, that'll be, that will be introduced into the record. General, you talked uh, briefly about the NDAA, and as you know, we have a requirement there for a, defined, uh, a combined uh, Department of Defense and Department of State um, capabilities report on gaps in the Ukrainian military and development of a multi-year strategy to address those issues. I think this report's important because it'll pinpoint the equipment and resources that Ukraine needs to push back against the continued Russian aggression in the Donbass and Crimea. And frankly, since we started assisting Ukraine in FY 2016 budgets, um, I've been encouraged um, by some of the progress we've made, but I've been uh, discouraged that we haven't had this type of report for Ukraine to be able to put it all together. By the way, I also support the legislation strongly that uh, Chairman Rich and Senator Menendez have led uh, with me and Senator Murphy, and I believe others now, um, which should be an, an authorization bill. And Senator Menendez talked about that earlier. But with regard to the NDAA report, could you comment on that, uh, General Dayton? Do you believe that that report is appropriate? Do you believe it would be helpful? Sorry, Senator, I had a problem with my computer for a second. I think it's very important, and it is a great opportunity for us to get Ukraine to finish focusing on mapping out requirements and priorities with our help. We've been advocating a capabilities-based midterm planning effort for the Ukrainians for the last at least two to three years. They have a new defense minister. He's taking a very deliberate approach to this problem. And what you have asked for in the NDAA is exactly the tool that I would have wanted uh, 
to help them get to where they need to be. I think this is this is very important, and I look forward to reading uh, both the chairman, Senator Menendez's uh, bill as well, which unfortunately I have not yet seen. Great. Well, thank you. The, the Ukraine Security Partnership Act is is what it's called, and it's it's. I think it's good because it standardizes the amount of security assistance that we'd have in a multi-year strategy. Uh, and I think that's important for long-term planning. I think you would agree uh, in dealing with the Ukrainian military, that's something that would be helpful to them. Uh, one thing I will tell you in response to our legislation, uh, we had a uh, member of the, uh, um, the Russian uh, State Duma Committee, the, the chairman actually say that uh, Russia may now officially start supplying arms to the Donbass separatists. Um, I thought that was kind of ironic since uh, it seems to me it's pretty clear they've been doing that. But can you comment on that? Yeah, I saw this comment by uh, Mr. Kalashnikov, and I'll tell you, it's really rich. Uh, you know, look, the Russians have about 2,300 people in the eastern provinces of Ukraine currently. They've given them more than 400 tanks, 700 field artillery pieces, mortars, drones, air defense artillery, small arms, crew-served weapons. Uh, this is ridiculous. Yeah, sure, uh, as if they're not involved. You know, before the, uh, the conflict started, these people had nothing, and the Ukrainian military had it all. And right now, this is a pretty formidable force that's facing Ukrainian military, and they are indeed led and accompanied by Russian active duty troops. Well, thank you for that. You know, having visited the contact line, as you know, I've been out there. Um, it's a hot war, and uh, and there are Ukrainians who are uh, dying uh, to defending their country, and and therefore I'm pleased to see that again the NDA not only has that report, but also we provide through that the the largest uh, amount of lethal defensive aid uh, the United States has, has yet provided. So I appreciate you and my colleagues uh, on this committee in a bipartisan way supporting that. Um, Mr. Burrier, can I ask you a quick question? First of all, I do think you're uniquely qualified uh, for this position, having worked to help transition OPIC into the DFC. Uh, my question to you has to do with what should the DFC be doing going forward? Uh, it's recently come into the spotlight because in order to help bring back domestic manufacturing capability in response to COVID-19, the president invoked the Defense Production Act to uh, delegate loan authority under sections 302 and 303 of the act to the CEO of the DFC. This will allow the DFC to make loans targeted at reshoring domestic supply chain manufacturing of PPE, something we all wanna see. Uh, uh, but because the DFC works now exclusively internationally, it seems a, a surprising move. And I understand the DFC has a lot of experience going into emerging markets and managing large investments uh, that said, I'm interested in your opinion as to why the DFC was chosen for this mission over other agencies that do operate in the United States with similar authorities. Sure. No, thank you, Senator, very much for, for the question. As you noted, there, the president side, signed an executive order in May that married DFC's financing skills with the DPA lending authority um, with a focus on COVID-19 recovery and, and relevant domestic supply change, which we all wanna see bolstered. Um, I think it's a sign of the unprecedented time that we're in that, we, that the president took such a step. Um, it's a time-limited two-year authority. Um, I feel very comforted by the fact, and wanna share with the committee that we have done a lot of work with DOD to wall that off so that these Defense Production Act loans are done under that authority, under DOD resources, 
and don't impact the resources of DFC's core international mission. So our 60 billion for DFC is reserved for the international development mission. Our appropriations are reserved for our staff and the, the DPA loans will be done under the DOD resources. Um, as regards to my role, if confirmed, uh, as you pointed out, that executive order is placed that authority into the CEO. I've been nominated to be the deputy CEO. My background's in foreign policy and, and, and development. And so if confirmed, uh, the CEO has asked me to make sure that my focus is gonna be on the international mission to ensure that, that we are, are laser focused on that because the, the challenges in the developing world are just coming at us so hard that um, we're not gonna take our eye off that ball. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm sure the chairman and others do as well as a original co-sponsor of the Build Act and someone who supported the DFC enterprise, you know, changing our approach and, and consolidating and trying to be able to compete with China and others. Uh, we don't want you to be taken away from your statutory mission to invest abroad. So I, I appreciate that commitment. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, sir. Thank you, Senator Portman. Um, Senator Shaheen, you're up next. I don't see your picture, but uh, the computer indicates you're with us. Right or am I wrong? You are correct, and hopefully you will see me. There you are. All right. Okay. Got it. Good. All right. There you um, well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to all of the nominees this morning for your willingness to come before the committee and testify and to consider being nominated for these roles. I am want to start with you, General Dayton. Um, because, and I, I'm sorry if you have answered this question because I wasn't able to get on the hearing um, until a few minutes ago, but Kurt Volker, before he became President Trump's envoy in 2017, observed that the Minsk agreements were, and I quote, not a solution, but a problem as they essentially legitimized the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, we know that this has been uh, the underpinning of U.S. foreign policy in Ukraine to support the Minsk agreements. But since it's been six years, we've seen no progress. And in fact, what we've seen, as you pointed out so um, correctly, is the continued support that Russia gives to uh, fighters in the Donbass. They're really directing that effort and the equipment and everything. Should we consider uh, trying to come up with a different agreement to address what's happening in Ukraine. Last, um, one of the examples that I think is so telling is that the Kremlin issued up to 1 million Russian passports to Ukrainians in the last year. And um, so do we think that it would make sense to for us to play a role in trying to negotiate a new agreement to address what's happening in Ukraine and the Donbass? It's a great question, and yes, it's not going well. Uh, as you probably know, the Ukrainians just put in their previous president, uh, Mr. Probchuk, to be the leader of their delegation now in these negotiations. One gets the impression this could go on indefinitely and that the Russians are playing rope-a-dope with everybody uh, as we go along. Should the United States get involved? I don't, I don't know. I'd have to examine that problem a lot more. Right now, the Ukrainians uh, under President Zelensky think that they are in a fairly good place because they are not going to give in to the Russians on territorial integrity issues or even special status for uh, the Donbass. 
but you know, we've got our hands full in a lot of places. Uh, I'd like to give it a shot myself first before I were able to give you a, uh, a more coherent answer. Well, thanks, I appreciate that. I remember um, when the Minsk agreement was being negotiated that there was a lot of opposition from the Germans and from other, from the Europeans basically to the United States providing more weapons to the Ukrainians to fight back against the Russians and um, a, a real ownership of that agreement in a way that they don't seem to continue to have. And so I don't know if you've been able to talk to anyone in the European community about Ukraine and whether they think it's time to look at trying to negotiate a new effort to end the fighting there and to address Russia's interventions. I do talk to Europeans about this. Uh, as you know, I'm resident here in Germany. Germany, Lithuania, uh, and the United Kingdom are members of the, uh, the group that I work with advising the defense minister. They all believe that we're doing the right thing. They all support the U.S. Uh, arming of the Ukrainians and trying to re, uh, revamp their defense sector. They think this all makes a lot of sense. The real question is politically, uh, where are these countries? And so far, the European Union countries have been pretty steadfast in sanctions against Russia, and they've had plenty of opportunity to walk away, and they've not done so. So I think that, uh, like I said, I'd like to take a good hard look at this if I'm confirmed, consult with the embassy experts that know about this, consult with the ambassadors of the countries that are involved in the Normandy process, and uh, take it from there. I would add one other thing. I know that Secretary Pompeo, in front of this committee last week, suggested that it's uh, it's a good time to, to kind of reactivate the former Kurt Volker position. Uh, I strongly agree with that. I think we could use the help. Um, that makes sense to me as well. And I look forward to hearing your assessment once you've been on the job for a while and see if you think there are other things we could do to address what's happening there in terms of the fight, fighting. Um, my next question is for Ms. Fisher. And like others, I certainly share the enthusiasm that we have. Um, we are now sending an ambassador to Belarus for the first time since 2008. And I know that there are some actions that Belarus has taken, which have meant that we, we feel like it is appropriate now to send an ambassador back to the country. But I, I wanna follow up a little bit on Senator Cardin's question and as you look at the things that, the steps that Belarus would need to take in order for more um, robust engagement, what kinds of things do you wanna see from Belarus in order to um, begin to see more openings for democratic initiatives, more opportunity to engage with the rest of Europe and move away from Russia? Um, thank you, Senator Shaheen. I, I really appreciate the, the question. Um, in my view, uh, there's a couple of elements of this, but it starts with Sunday. It starts with the elections on Sunday and not taking steps backward from the modest progress we have seen in recent years in terms of the climate for the political opposition and independent civil society. Um, the, the first component to ensuring that we can continue to grow this relationship to not see steps backward in the conduct of this presidential election. Um, 
beyond that, I, I think it's incredibly important that we consult with our allies and our partners in the West, uh, in Europe, about um, where there are opportunities for us to continue to, to help Belarus build confidence that there's room, that there is space in Belarus for opposition voices, for civil society. Fundamentally, I think that the tenets of the Belarus Democracy Act, uh, the requirements that are outlaid in it, um, and what we are trying to get done is basically to ensure that there is space, to ensure there is space for more than one voice in this country. And it is uh, important to me to understand the dynamics on the ground and what are the what are the pieces as we think about sequencing, as we think about the concrete steps? Um, I don't want to sort of prejudge what that looks like from here at this point, um, but I, I'll tell you, I, I see this committee, I see uh, the members of the staff as um, important partners in how we gauge our process going forward. There really, uh, there is opportunity for us in Belarus. There's no question about it. And um, moving beyond the idea that this is a country that is uh, looking only at one other capital or perhaps two other capitals I, is absolutely essential as we think about security in Europe in my mind. Um, but uh, we don't do that absent our own uh, values and our own national interests. So, I know that um, we're in the, they're still in the middle of pandemic in Europe as well, but will there be any independent monitors at the election this weekend? Uh, unfortunately, the OSCE will not be on the ground, nor will the Council of Europe. Um, I don't know that I could say there will be none. Uh, our embassy will have um, a, a limited number of teams. We have a limited presence on the ground. We will have folks observing on Sunday. Um, there are already uh, members of our team who are observing the early voting period, which has already started. Um, but uh, that is different from a fulsome observation effort. So I think uh, it will be quite difficult to draw um, conclusions absent those key uh, information points, those key data points, which we generally look to uh, to help inform our judgments about the conduct of elections. What about any civil society um, monitors? There has been a very interesting, um, I, I, I'd like to characterize it perhaps as a grassroots sort of movement for individuals to mm -hmm. report on what they're seeing in polling stations. There's been a reaction from the Central Election Commission uh, to whether or not that is allowed uh, the the way that precincts are being uh, set up is a little different from how it was in the past. Uh, there has been a, a proposal for individual voters to record what they see in polling stations or even potentially their votes. Um, and uh, that is uh, certainly not accepted by the Central Election Commission uh, and the authorities. So. Um, we're also, you know, as we think about the pre-election environment, we're also looking at uh, campaign rallies are, are authorized and they require permission. The cancellation, the late breaking cancellation of previously approved 
uh, events is is something that we don't need. We don't need people taking photographs and precincts to understand those dynamics. So it, it is a it is a part of the overall picture of the conduct of these elections. Thank you, um, Mr. Chairman. I don't know how much time I still have, but I do have. Well, Senator, the chairman has been very generous with the time. <laughs> you owe me some time right now, but uh, you. Uh, we, these are important noms. We have uh, people that are going to uh, important places, so uh, feel free. Well, thank you. I, I do have a couple more questions for Ms. Barber. Um, Ms. Barber, if confirmed, part of your role will be to represent the United States at forums, including the Commission on the Status of Women, which functions under the Economic and Social Council at the UN. Unfortunately, last year, the U.S. delegation is reported to have pushed for the removal of the term gender in the final document outlining the priorities of the commission for the year. Now, if confirmed, will you prioritize women's rights and at the U.N., and will you work to reassert the role of the U.S. in um, promoting and protecting women's rights around the world? Yes, absolutely, Senator. And can you also talk about how you might use that the position at the UN to do that, the kinds of uh, actions that you would like to see happen to support the rights and empowerment of women around the world? Yes, Senator, thank you for this question because the empowerment of women and girls is critical and I believe that it's important that we unlock the potential there. Um, there are already exists many affiliates and UN agencies like the UN um, Women, uh, the Commission on the Status of Women that you mentioned, and then even within this administration here in the United States, WGDP and other organizations that are really coming together and doing a whole of government approach towards um, seeing to it that we empower women. And so if confirmed, I will work and build on that momentum that already exists and um, add my voice and energy to that. Well, thank you. We also have legislation that's um, before the committee right now that will encourage economic empowerment of women. And I'm hopeful that we can move that legislation. Thank you very much. Uh, are you done, Senator Shaheen? Then? Yes, so uh, I have uh, Chris Murphy. I don't see his picture, but I see he's uh, entered. Uh, Chris, are you there? Senator Murphy? I guess uh, not. That I, I am. Can you see me? I cannot see you. There is a button on your computer that you can get your grandkids to push for you. If you, if you. <laughs> uh, I should be here. You're on now. All right, great. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to all of our witnesses for your uh, willingness to serve. Um, just one very quick uh, comment before I ask a few questions, uh, um, and, and that is to Mr. Burrier. Thank you for your willingness to serve in an agency that we have given um, a wide-ranging mission to. Um, I would um, uh, agree with Senator Portman's concerns about the additional responsibilities that have been given to DFC. Um, but um, I would note that uh, amongst the countries that the DFC is involved in today is Lebanon, and our heart breaks for um, the explosion that has killed untold numbers of 
uh, Lebanese, um, but I think it is a country now that DFC can double down on. Um, there are some investments there that um, I think will be very, very important to the, to the rebuilding and the economic stabilization of that nation. And so I just make that um, uh, editorial comment at the beginning. Um, my uh, questions, though, are for uh, uh, for General Dayton, um, and I want to build upon the line of inquiry from Senator Menendez. Um, I understand your answer to his specific question about whether or not you would meet with Rudy Giuliani. Uh, your answer is that you would be open to meeting with any U.S. citizen. Um, but I think the reason Senator Menendez asked this is that Rudy Giuliani was not in Ukraine as a private U.S. citizen. He was there representing the campaign interests of the president of the United States. And so let me maybe ask the same question, but more generally, um, do you think it's appropriate for uh, the ambassador to Ukraine uh, to be meeting with uh, representatives of the president's reelection effort uh, or the president's opponent's reelection efforts, particularly months prior to uh, an election? Senator, the answer to that is uh, the greatest strategic asset to Ukraine right now is the bilateral and bipartisan support that they enjoy from the U.S. Congress. And as ambassador, I would do my utmost to protect that bipartisan support and uh, look at any requests for audiences and all that with a very critical eye, because I believe that's that's the real jewel in the crown for Ukraine right now is bipartisan support for the country. So I approached this hearing very much like Senator Portman. I was enthusiastic about your nomination. You seem to be the perfect person to fit the bill at this moment, but I will admit to being a little concerned about your inability to answer these questions directly. Um, let me ask again, do you think it's appropriate for the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine to be meeting with representatives of either Joe Biden's re-election campaign or the president's re-election campaign within 100 days of a presidential election? Well, Senator, I, 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 I'm not quite sure what you're looking for. First of all, uh, it would depend on what their agenda is. And I think that's something that I simply would have to find out. If they're there for very partisan purposes, of course not. It's not something the U.S. ambassador should be advancing the interests of either of the parties just before a presidential election. I would note that I don't think Mr. Giuliani ever met with the U.S. ambassador. Uh, matter of fact, the concern was that he didn't. Um, that's a slightly more direct answer, but I think it, it was a pretty easy one. I'll lay up in my mind. Um, let me ask you a policy question. Um, we've talked a lot about military aid, and I am a sponsor um, of the legislation that has been referred to several times. Uh, at the same time, um, I don't see Putin's aims as marching an army into Kyiv. Uh, Putin is trying to economically and politically break the country. Uh, and I fear that we have had a myopia in that we have uh, sort of um, I think seen our role um, far too often in providing military support rather than political and economic support. 
Um, do you agree with me that Putin's real aim ultimately here is not to march an army uh, across uh, eastern Ukraine? It is to try to create enough political and economic instability such that a government is installed in Kyiv that is once again friendly to his interests like the Yanukovych government was. And if that's the case, isn't it just as important, if not more important for us to be supplying economic and political and anti-corruption aid to Ukraine as it is for us to be supplying security assistance? I think you're right, Senator. And uh, I do think the security assistance is important, but you're right, Putin's goal is to destabilize this country and why fight if he can if he can destabilize the country without fighting? And uh, yes, economic and other kind of assistance is very important, uh, but needs to be tied to genuine reform on the Ukrainian side as well, because all the assistance in the world not tied to reform probably doesn't do much good either. Um, and lastly, uh, General Dayton, um, as you mentioned, you are uh, an expert not only in Ukraine but um, uh, on. Germany and U.S.-German relations. Um, the president of the United States uh, has said that Germany has done nothing for Ukraine. Um, do you agree with that statement? I would tell you that the United States is overwhelmingly the uh, the supporter of uh, of Ukraine in most ways. I work with a German colleague on my defense reform advisory board. He would be the first to admit to you that Germany is doing some things, primarily in the area of medical assistance and how you build hospitals and things like that. But in, I guess, in my view, Germany could do more and perhaps will do more. Uh, Germany, in fact, has a sizable uh, humanitarian commitment to Ukraine and a sizable uh, democracy and government's commitment to Ukraine, correct? They do. So it's not true that Germany's doing nothing to help Ukraine. Well, that's correct, Senator. I don't think I said that. I said I would like to see Germany do more. Uh, little Lithuania does more for Ukraine, frankly, in my perspective, than most countries. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Appreciate that. Um, just looking at the computer here, I think the only ones left are uh, Senator Menendez. And, I, uh, and before I turn back to Senator Menendez for some additional questions, are there, are there any other members of the committee that are on? That, uh, Senator Kane's on. Okay, I didn't see that. Senator Kane, where are you? Oh, there you are. Welcome. Senator Kane, the floor is yours. We have a very strict five-minute rule here. I, I have been seeing how unstrict it's been, but I'm going to stick with <laughs> I'm nuts. Um, I was hoping you weren't watching. Go yeah, ahead. Any of my questions have been answered. I want. I want to Thank ask. Uh, I want to ask uh, Alex Wong if I could, Mr. Wong. Um, I really want to focus on the job that you are currently in because your work on the North Korea desk, I think, is is important work, and I'd sort of like to get a status update from you um, about what we might expect and how the committee can be helpful in this. Um, I have appreciated when Steve Began has come to the committee that he's pretty candid about efforts, but he doesn't oversell results. If there are results, he doesn't try to convince us that there are. And this seems to be a very difficult problem. And I, I put that on North Korea's shoulders, not on the administration's shoulders. I think we're making a lot of efforts, but as of yet, I've not really seen anything that I would consider a result to celebrate. But, but 
share with me, if you will, we had a we had a hearing yesterday about Venezuela, and I think a number of us were we're trying a lot of things, but we're not seeing the result that we like. Just as we tried a lot of things in Syria, we didn't see the result there that we liked. The the current dynamic uh, in North Korea uh, with North Korea, you know, now testing out apparently, uh, according to recent news, uh, very small warheads, miniaturized warheads. They're moving forward at a rapid pace, and we haven't yet come up with the, the strategies in tandem with others to stop them. Is there any reason that you know members of the committee should feel optimistic about you know that that something is around the corner that might change the equation, or are we seeing a North Korea that's just dead set on doing what they want, and there's little that the U.S. can do to alter their calculation? Senator, thank you uh, for the question, and also thank you for your continued engagement as well as your colleagues on this committee uh, on this on this vital issue. Uh, you're right. Uh, you know, we have not uh, yet, uh, as is obvious, uh, reached the final and fully verified denuclearization in North Korea, which is the objective of, of the president's policy and of these negotiations. Um, you know, it is a difficult problem set. You mentioned these news reports of uh, uh, the term is miniaturization of warhead work. And, you know, that report, that's a, a UN POE report uh, or a report on that report, that's not public yet. Uh, I haven't had a chance to fully review it, but here's what we know. Um, you know, for years, North Korea has been pursuing uh, nuclear weapons, it's been pursuing missile technology uh, to threaten uh, the region, threaten the world, and, and to threaten the United States of America. But that's why it's so important for us to have the policy and the strategy that we do. As you know, the strategy starts with an unprecedented international pressure campaign one that arose uh, from uh, work at the UN Security Council, but also from, from your committee uh, and the broad, uh, not just sanctions, uh, but diplomatic isolation and overall cooperation with partners around the world to pressure uh, North Korea to show that there are costs for them um, departing from the international consensus on non-proliferation, but also to use those sanctions and that pressure to channel them into productive negotiations on a roadmap that will implement the complete denuclearization that uh, Chairman Kim committed to President Trump. Now, we are two years over two years on from the Singapore summit. The good thing about the summit, the good thing about the work we've done at the leader level is that we have something we haven't had before, which is a leader level commitment to complete denuclearization in North Korea. But I'll be the first to tell you that we have not yet done the working level negotiations, the hard work of negotiations that we need to do to develop the roadmap to realize that objective. Uh, what I will say is the U.S. is ready. Uh, you've been in, in discussions with, with Special Rep Deputy Began, Special Representative Began on this. We have a strong team here, an interagency team ready to negotiate. But we need to continue on the strategy, continue on the pressure, continue to galvanize the world behind the consensus strategy of using pressure, again, to channel North Korea into productive negotiations. Mr. Wong, one more question to show my chairman that I'm going to stick in my five minutes, and this will be my last question, and that is, to what extent are we, do we still believe that the, an ultimate positive resolution of this set will involve significant involvement by China? And how is the current U.S.-China friction uh, making that uh, necessary involvement, if you think that it's a necessary element, uh, more complicated? Senator, thank you for the question. You know, China does have a role to play here. And you know, we have obviously a very complicated relationship across the board with China right now. But one thing that they have consistently said to us is that they see North Korea as an area 
upon which we can build cooperation or continue to cooperate. Now, that is a good sentiment. That is a good message. And I do believe we have overlapping interests with China on the peninsula, perhaps not identical interests, but overlapping interests. So we can grow that. But that takes work. That takes diplomacy and communication. And that does take real action and commitment from the Chinese. Now, you remember in 2017 at the UN, uh, China did come aboard with unprecedented sanctions. And they have done a lot to uh, implement those sanctions as far as taking down the two-way trade to really uh, extremely low levels with, with, with North, North Korea. Uh, but there continues to be more work that China can do, particularly on sanctions enforcement. And this is a continued conversation that, that we have uh, with, with the Chinese, that Deputy Secretary Began has specifically uh, with the Chinese. They can do more, but we need to keep the, the, the lines of communication open. We won't always agree, but we should continue to communicate, continue work to work together, Again, we do have overlapping interests on the peninsula. Mr. Wong, thank you. Mr. Chair, seat back. Thank you, Senator King. That was an important line of inquiry, and I appreciate you doing that. Uh, is there, besides myself and Senator Menendez, are there any other members of the committee on the call? Jump in. If not, uh, Senator Menendez, I'll recognize you again. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, <clears throat> Let me go back to General Dayton. Uh, General Dayton, just so I understand, your, uh, is it your uh, view that if confirmed, your responsibility as the U.S. ambassador is to not only report and share information with the executive branch, but also Congress? Of course, Senator, I, I, I do believe that. And let me, let me clarify something for both you and Senator Murphy, if I may. Uh, the questions originally came in about Mr. Giuliani, and I'd like to put Mr. Giuliani off to the side for a second. If I, as the U.S. ambassador in Kiev, have any indication that there is any kind of election interference going on using Ukraine as a, uh, as a lever to do that, I would, of course, report that directly to this committee. I think you have a, a right to know that. I think I have an obligation to report that to you. I hope I didn't make it unclear. What I was trying to say was that, you know, if somebody wants to see me, I'll critically assess. But as far as the responsibilities of this committee, in a case like that, I agree with you on that. Well, I appreciate that additional clarification. It's very helpful. Let me ask you this on two substantive questions. If Congress was to pass additional legislation to increase security assistance for Ukraine, what sectors of the Ukrainian security forces would you propose be strengthened? It's a great question, Senator, and we're already working on it. The answer is the Navy, and the answer is the Air Force. Those are the two sectors that need the most work. Uh, and we are already working on that, largely through the, the generosity of, of your committee in the U.S. Senate. Uh, the Ukrainians have the ability now to deal with some of the things in coastal patrol, maritime domain awareness that are very, very important. And as I said earlier, the Black Sea, in my view, will become an increasingly important area for all of us to be looking at strategically. Okay, and, and finally, uh, it's a developing democracy and there remain significant reform challenges. If confirmed, what would be your priorities on reform and your plan to uh, see them come to fruition? I would tell you that it's probably what I would call rule of law and the judiciary. You're right, it's an emerging democracy. It's not there yet, it's working very hard. 
Uh, I get a lot of young Ukrainians here at the Marshall Center who are very idealistic, working in these areas of countering corruption and countering the old ways. And they tell me almost to a person that it's the judiciary that is the problem, that they can come up with cases to put before the judiciary and the cases are either dismissed or they're delayed for so long that they are no longer meaningful. This is an area that I think is very, very important, and it will be probably my number one priority if I were confirmed. Well, thank you very much for those answers. Uh, Ms. Barber, let me go back to you. On the issue of women's rights and empowerment, can you provide us with your understanding of whether women can meaningfully participate in the economy if they are not able to have autonomous control of their own bodies supported by comprehensive access to sexual and reproductive health? Senator, I will say that the United States has um, historically and continues to be the largest contributor for programs that help women and children, the health and wellness of women. And um, I, I believe that we continue to um, support women's health. Okay, you're, you're a very uh, uh, capable attorney from what I'm told. Let me, re let me repeat my question. On this issue of women's rights and empowerment, the question goes to, can a woman, from your perspective as someone who is gonna be at ECOSOC and uh, be involved with these issues, can they meaningfully participate in the economy if they're not able, not able to have autonomous control of their own bodies supported by comprehensive access to sexual and reproductive health? Yes, no? Senator, I would say that it's a difficult question to, to um to answer, but but I believe that women, um, we need to help women find ways to meaningfully participate in their economies. And I think that they can, but I think that they, in some countries, they need help. And um, if confirmed, I look forward to adding my voice to the United States efforts um, that already exist to helping women. Well, I appreciate that, but uh, here's the problem. You know, you're you're going to be in a position in which the issues that I have just raised with you are going to be a significant part of your portfolio. You may want to skirt them with me. You may not want to offend somebody uh, who maybe has been part of your nominating process, but you will be representing the totality of the United States of America. And our, our law has been very clear in this regard. Our, our pursuits, our engagement has been very clear in this regard. So you leave me uh, unnerved by your answer. Let me ask you this, will you commit to complying with the Sulgender Amendment prohibition on lobbying for or against abortions in multilateral forms? I can't hear you, can you put your microphone on? Yes, Senator. Thank you, all right. Uh, let me let me turn to Mr. Wong. Uh, Mr. Wong, uh, over the past several years, uh, the U.S. has taken actions that have downgraded uh, its engagement with a number of critical U.N. bodies and peacekeeping, uh, uh, U.N. bodies and programs. It's racked up nearly a billion dollars in arrears on its U.N. peacekeeping dues, withdrawn from the U.N. Human Rights Council, withheld funding for the U.N. Human Rights Office, abrogated its participation in other U.N. institutions and initiatives, including the Paris Agreement, most recently submitted paperwork to withdraw uh, the United States from the World Health Organization in the midst of the global pandemic. So 
as someone who's being nominated to participate in the probably the premier multilateral forum, uh, do do you agree with these decisions to withdraw from key multilateral bodies at a time in which the world faces uh, enormous global issues? Sarah, thank you for the question. Let me just start by saying I think the UN is a vital institution. I think the UN system, uh, largely due to US leadership and in US funding over the decades, has developed a number of institutions to uh, benefit not just US interests, but to support the UN Charter, um, namely speaking of peacekeeping operations, uh, uh, World Food Program, UNICEF, counterterrorism uh, uh, bodies, a whole phalanx of bodies that we support and we continue to lead and are the number one funder of. Now, you've talked about uh, withdrawal from certain organizations. I do think when there is an organization that does not abide by the UN Charter, which does not live up to its principles, uh, where reform or the path to reform uh, is, is, is not available with continued U.S. participation, withdrawal should be considered because it is a, a strong incentive for reform to get those bodies to up to, again, fulfilling the principles in, in their missions as well as the U.N. Charter. Uh, but putting aside withdrawal, which is a, a, a decision not to be uh, taken lightly, we do need concerted diplomacy, concerted U.S. leadership to galvanize our, 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 our like-mindeds, the blunt uh, damaging initiatives, but also to reform and keep these organizations honest to the U.N. Charter. Well, uh, let me just take your, your explanation to a logical conclusion. Let's assume that just for the sake of argument, that every uh, entity within the UN body is one in which you make the decision that in fact, we cannot by our participation seek the and achieve the reform that we want, then what's the use of being part of the United Nations? Sir, thank, thank you for your question. I, I don't think that's the case with the grand majority of organizations that we support. Again, I do think the UN system uh, is a vital institution that, that fulfills not just our interests, but again, the interests of, of our friends and allies and of the interests of people around the world that is in the UN Charter. So I don't think we're there with the grand majority of organizations, uh, but we'll continue to do the work to ensure that the uh, organizations uh, across the UN system, but particularly in, in my portfolio in the security space, in the peacekeeping space, that those do remain faithful to the charter, that those do advance uh, global interests and, and uh, uh, do not compromise uh, the principles that all countries signed up to when they signed up for the UN Charter. Well, I worry that uh, when we uh, recede, China accedes uh, and ultimately uh, fills in uh, the space and seeks to mold the institution in its own uh, desire. And so it's it's a real concern uh, as, as we move forward. But let me talk about peacekeeping since you just raised that particularly in your portfolio. Do you agree that peacekeeping operations are an important example of burden sharing by countries across the globe? I do agree with that, sir. And if confirmed, will you work to ensure that peacekeeping operations continue to prominently feature in the UN's efforts to mitigate conflict? I do, sir. Um, and, but what happens when we promote those views, which I agree with you on, I agree with your answers. Um, particularly to our allies when we fail to honor our financial commitments to missions that we ourselves have voted for uh, on the Security Council. Senator, thank you for the question. I agree with you that peacekeeping operations have to be appropriately funded so they can complete their missions. 
They need to be effective to create stability in terms of security so we can hand it off uh, to have uh, ultimate political stability in these hotspots around the world. Now, I, you've mentioned arrears, you've mentioned funding. I, I, should, I do want to know, the United States remains by far the number one funder of peacekeeping operations around the world. But we, we do abide by uh, uh, the policy, and I think a, a legislative policy, uh, that we should not fund more than one quarter or 25% uh, of, of the budget. I think our, our assessment, if I, my numbers are correct, is around 27.8 or 28%. Uh, so we're falling short of that. That's because of, I think, a very reasonable policy. We supply more than, but we supply one quarter of these funding, of, of these funds. We do think other countries should step up. There are 193 uh, member states of, of the United Nations. We do take on a lot of the burden because we are the world's leader. We are the world's only superpower. But I think 25% is a reasonable number. Uh, but look, I, I look forward, if I'm to be confirmed, sir, on engaging on this issue and continuing the consultation with you and your office, as well as this committee on this important issue. I just think we have a real concern when we at the Security Council vote for peacekeeping operations and then we fall in arrears uh, of our commitment. So even if we are the largest, then uh, if we think that a peacekeeping operation is in the national interest of the United States, uh, then we have to see that its mission can be achieved. So um, uh, I, I appreciate your, your, your global answer. But this is going to be a continuing issue as to how we cast our vote and then how we ultimately deal with the with the mission itself in terms of its funding. Uh, let me finally turn to uh, Mr. Barrier and uh, and Ms. Uh, uh, our nominee for Belarus. Uh, Mr. Barrier, do, do you believe that's appropriate for the DFC to be undertaking domestic supply chain issues? Uh, Senator, as you know, the president signed an executive order to give us that limited two year authority. I'm comforted by the fact that we have structured that so that that authority is going to take place under the Defense Production Act and not compete with the resources for the DFC and our international mission, which I'm committed to. Yeah, well, when, when I helped create the DFC, I can tell you it's not what I uh, was supportive of creating to do. The DFC is an international development role. And uh, I, I don't expect uh, not only was it not in its mandate, I don't expect that the staff and resources are going to be used to take away from the congressionally mandated uh, mission. And so I, I'm seriously concerned about that. I'm also concerned, uh, you know, I, su I uh, successfully fought to include uh, OPIC's environmental and social policy statement transferred to the DFC. Uh, I, I need to understand uh, how the DFE published a new ESPS that looks very different from the ESPS that Section 606 of the Build Act was supposed to transfer. Uh, I need you to explain how these changes were made without violating Section 606. And I don't have anything against nuclear power. It exists in New Jersey. But I'm very skeptical of the DFC's new policy to consider proposals to build nuclear power plants in developing countries uh, regarding security, environmental concerns, long-term debt, management constraints, and nuclear plants would be crippling to many developing countries. So explain to me how what you all did as it relates to, to that provision doesn't violate uh, what the law actually says. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Senator. And I've worked with your staff on that provision, Section 
1466 of the Build Act did transfer OPEC's environmental policy to the DFC. Um, since that time, we did voluntarily notice for a period of public and comment a proposed change to the OPEC's nuclear policy. Um, we, that was a voluntary effort on our end. It, we thought that it made sense that since Build Act was part of modernizing our development finance capabilities to see if it made sense to take a fresh look at that policy. Uh, we heard from many members of the committee, um, held, uh, got a, a lot of support for that change to allow us to consider nuclear projects. Um, but I want to assure you that that does not change the countries that we would operate in or our developmental mandate. We believe strongly that energy is a key driver of economic development and see a role for the modern small uh, 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 small medium reactors that are coming online in the future and want to work closely with the committee as that policy develops to ensure that um, you have the information you need. Well, I, I, uh, if you're confirmed, but I will follow up with the agency no matter what, but if you're confirmed, I definitely want to follow up with you make sure that what was the law maintains not only in its actions but in its spirit as well and finally if i may mr thank you uh, uh ms fisher um let me ask you uh we we rejoice in, in seeing the movement that uh, uh belarus is taking but the president uh, of belarus uh uh may be moving away from moscow but he's clearly not moving towards democracy uh do you agree with the principles that were laid out in the belarus democracy act yes sir i do you know how should the, the united states approach the issues of sanctions with respect to belarus um senator i would urge that we approach them carefully uh i would not support any um hasty judgments uh, to to move on sanctions. I think they have, they were put in place for specific um, concrete reasons and the absence of progress in those areas, uh, we should, uh, I, I would suggest, consult very carefully between the administration and this committee uh, as to our assessments and our judgments of progress that we may or may not see with regards to those conditions. Let me let me phrase it this way. Do you agree with the current posture where sanctions are suspended but could snap back in the event of a regime crackdown? I think that the um, the suspension of those sanctions has been a very useful tool in this moment. And I do believe that they are something that they are a very valuable tool for us should we see steps backwards. Mm. Um, it's very hard for me to predict when, if, what are the precise conditions under which we would do that, particularly given how challenging it will be to understand conditions on the ground in the coming days and weeks uh, with the lack of observer missions, the, uh, the limited number of people who, who will be observing these elections. But the the suspension is a very useful tool for us yes sir and finally how, how do you intend to engage if you're confirmed with the belarusian government on issues like a more competitive democratic elections and ending politically motivated detentions what specific actions do you think we should 
prioritize in responding to those problems? I think, sir, I, my own experience in this part of the world tells me that we have a, the most important thing we do is we have an honest and a direct conversation with a range of authorities. Uh, in Belarus, uh, there is uh, one person whose opinion uh, matters most, um, but helping to build confidence to make progress in these areas and seeing this as a step that helps ensure Belarus's sovereignty and independence, uh, I think is an effort that takes time and it takes repeated engagement and conversations. Um, I think the importance of a message that is unified from Washington, and I think we have had uh, really out of Washington, we have spoken very clearly, I think with one voice, and that's been very useful. The, the statement uh, from Senators Rubio and Cardin and Durbin um, on the conduct of the elections, in addition to Secretary Pompeo's statement, in addition to what our embassy in Minsk has put out, that is incredibly important uh, as Belarus makes a calculation about uh, its own standing. And um, you know, Belarus has been very clear that they, they are seeking further engagement with the West. Well, just as, uh, you know, it's very clear how many strings are attached to, to Moscow's uh, engagement in Belarus. It's also clear the high costs of doing business with Beijing. But for us in the West, and not just the United States, but for us in the West, um, seeing Belarus make progress in these areas is it's a, absolutely essential. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. You, you have been true to your word. You've been very generous with the time. I appreciate it considering the size of the panel. Thank you, Senator. I, I want to uh, comment just very briefly on uh, your conversation with Mr. Burrier regarding uh, the, the the mission of the DFC and, and the way they're operating that. I I think Mr. Burrier laid out uh, really clearly, and, and, and I sincerely appreciate your concerns regarding the, the issues you raised. You know, the DFC's job is clearly spelled out there's nothing more important to development than electricity and, and energy um right now in my home state uh, the Idaho national laboratory which was a birthplace of nuclear power in the world has built 52 uh, different reactors they're now on, in the process of building the, what they call the smr the small module reactor. and even before that one's done they moved to the micro reactor that is actually portable on a trailer. Uh, these are these these things are going to be absolutely critical to development in, uh, in difficult parts of the world. So I, I applaud what uh, what DFC is doing in that regard, and and I, I I'm not by that challenging your concerns uh, about that. I think they're concerns that uh, uh, that that should be considered. Uh, and, but as we move forward, I, I think we all need to join together. Uh, particularly when we have the ability to do one, two, three agreements and uh, uh, that, that can, uh, that, that hopefully uh, will uh, spread the use of electricity around the world and do it uh, where we don't get proliferation. And we are the vendor instead of countries and vendors who don't care about the nuclear electrification. So th those are just a few more remarks that I have, but I, in no way do I demean what uh, your thoughts regarding so thank you. Thank you, sir.
So with that, we're we're gonna uh, we're gonna end the hearing. And uh, thanks to uh, our uh, our nominees, uh, certainly some talent here, uh, and especially thanks to your families who will share in uh, sacrifices that you make. We we truly appreciate that on behalf of the and the Senate. Uh, I want to extend our appreciation for that. Uh, for the uh, committee, the record will remain open until close of business tomorrow. And uh, any questions that are asked, we'd appreciate that those of you who nominees get back very quickly, quickly as possible. Thank you, and uh, thanks to all for participation in the hearing. That the hearing is adjourned.